Hello, Bel Air Church. It is good to be with you today as we gather around the campfire, the bonfire, the fireplace, wherever you are, as we gather to hear from God's word, we're longing to hear wisdom from the sages of scripture. And today we get to hear from a particular sage. His name is Peter. I gotta be honest, I haven't heard much from Peter in quite a while. We hear a lot from a number of different characters throughout scripture, but Peter the rock. Jesus says that upon this rock, I will build my church. We get to hear from Peter today. I got to be honest, I'm really excited because I've had an opportunity to get reacquainted with Peter. And the wisdom that he shares with us has changed everything. I mean, everything. It has shifted the church, not just Bel Air Church. I'm talking church universal. What Peter shares, the wisdom that he offers us today has changed everything. And so as we go to God's word in a moment, we're gonna go longing to hear Peter's story as if it's coming from Peter firsthand. We're gonna be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses nine through 16. So I'd encourage you to go there now, or you can just read the scripture as it appears on the screen. But hear this as if Peter is saying this himself. Acts 10, verses nine through 16. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, I, Peter, went up to the roof to pray. I became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while I was being prepared, I fell into a trance. I saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. And in it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. And the voice said to me again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And this happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. This is Peter's story as it's recorded in the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. I got a confession to make. I often get hangry. I don't know if you're familiar with hangry, but it's a, it's a hun hunger-induced anger, right? But I've never been trangry. I've never had a trance that's been induced by hunger. You know, sure, I daydream about food. Who doesn't, right? A, a carne asada burrito, just massive, thick, juicy, probably too large for any one human being to consume. It's a... It's California style, if you're familiar with that, but that means it's got guacamole inside, potatoes, cheese. I'm sorry, what were we talking about? Oh, that's right, I'm sorry. Peter's vision. It's kind of a weird story, right? Have you ever like experienced or, or read something in God's word that you didn't quite get the first pass? 
I mean, even sometimes it takes us like a second pass at whatever it is that we're reading, whatever we're hearing. And it doesn't have to be like a, a vision of cows, you know, hanging out with pigs or snakes hanging out with birds for it to be like, wait, what God? I mean, sometimes these stories take a third pass, much like Peter, even a fourth. I mean, it can go on and on. It takes time for scripture for us to understand what God is trying to say. And it takes an even longer time for that to sink into our being and actually shift us and move us into the direction that God wants us to go. What do you do? What do you do when you come across a passage that you don't quite understand? Do you sit and ponder it? Do you stare into the flames of the fire and and ask questions of the text or do you just skip over it? (laughs) Like you just skip over and you just hope, God, I I hope that this passage wasn't very significant. I have done that myself, but we can't. We can't skip over this passage. We have to sit with it. We have to stare into the fire and ponder what God is trying to communicate to us through Peter's vision. It's such a significant moment in the life of the church. And if this is you, if you are someone who doesn't quite get it the first time, the second time, the third time, you're in good company. I want to say welcome. (laughs) Honestly, I didn't get it the first time. Oftentimes, I still don't get it. Peter didn't get it the first time, the second time, even the third time. You are in good company, but let's sit together. Let's listen again. Let's try to ask good questions. Let's ponder what it is that God would have us to say. Let's go back to the text and hear one of the most pivotal moments, one of the crucial moments, a a massive shift in the life of the church. Let's go back and try to make sense of this vision. It's found again in Acts 10, verses 9 through 10. We read that it's about noon the next day. And as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. It's noon. And Peter decides that he wants to pray but he doesn't have a prayer chair. Instead, he has a a prayer roof. And while he's on the roof, Peter gets hungry, right? It's lunchtime. And so he asks for something to eat. And and about this time in the story, all seems fairly normal. Food's being prepared. And then he falls into a trance. Now, this is more than a daydream. Peter falls into a trance that's a vision from God, a unique vision from God from God for Peter's eyes only. And what does he see? Verse 11, he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. Now, heaven here in this passage is not what we often think about heaven. It's not the pearly gates. It's not the gold streets. It's not the singing cherubim. This is more like the skies parted. We say that oftentimes, the skies parted. This this is the sky. And out of the sky comes this huge sheet. It's lowered down by its four corners. In verse 12, what's on the sheet? There were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Wait, what kind of animals were there? 
all kinds. Each and every kind of four-footed creature, every kind of reptile, every kind of bird, every kind of animal was represented on this sheet. And what was God's command to Peter? Kill and eat. Simple enough, right? Peter's hungry, God provides, kill and eat, right? Wrong. Listen to what Peter has to say in his response. Verse 14, Peter says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. Bold. (laughs) Bold, Peter. By no means. Like, could you imagine responding to God in that way? By no means, Lord. That's like a modern day way of saying, like, no way, Jose. Absolutely not. Nope. Not a chance. Why would Peter respond to God in this way? I can't imagine Peter rejecting a direct command from God. Unless by some chance, Peter thought that by doing so, he was actually honoring God. That he was actually being faithful. Could it be that, that Peter thought that he was actually responding in a righteous way? See, there was a Levitical law concerning food. Back in the day, God gave Moses a command, a very specific command. You can find it in the book of Leviticus chapter 11. And in this this chapter, God lays out uh, a number of different kinds of animals that he deems as clean and he deems as unclean. In fact, he says, this is what I want you to eat and this is what I don't want you to eat in order for you to be holy in my presence. God was very particular with what he deemed as off limits and out of bounds. I'm not gonna go to the chapter, but I'm gonna read you a list and we'll get a good idea as to what God said was actually out of bounds. God gives this detailed list to Moses. God says, cows, good. Camels, not good. And the list goes on. He says, pig, rabbit, rock badger. Yes, rock badger. I mean, who doesn't like a really good rock badger burrito? Am I right? Like California style, get some of those beans, guacamole, potato, no? Okay, so yes, God is like, no way, off limits, absolutely not, that's unclean. What about birds? Are birds off the menu? God lists eagles, vultures, osprey, These are pretty amazing birds, right? The the heights that they fly, their their hunting skills, the amazing inspirational greeting cards that they make. No, God's like, absolutely not. Do not touch, do not eat. He says that they are an abomination. The buzzard, God says, the kite of any kind, Ravens, and there's more, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull. Okay, seagulls are gross. Let's just be honest. They eat trash. They eat my chips at the beach. They poop on my car. They are detestable creatures. I'm with you on that one. But God goes on. Any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the, the cormorant, the water hen, the pelican, the carrion vulture, the stork, any kind of heron, hoopoe, and the bat. All of these creatures, God says, are detestable, an abomination, unclean. 
You shall not eat, God says. Abomination. That's an aggressive word. Detestable. That's some pretty heavy duty language. Unclean gives a vivid picture of what these animals are like, but you shall not eat. That is a strong command. Why does God give us, give Peter, give the Israelites this command? Leviticus eleven forty two through 44 says this, you shall not eat for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any creature that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them and so become unclean. For I am the Lord your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. God says, you are what you eat. You eat something that's off limits, you become off limits. You eat something that's unclean, you become unclean. You ingest something, you take something into your body that's been corrupted, you become corrupted. And there's more. In fact, if you were to touch the carcass of an unclean animal, you become unclean. If you eat a clean animal that was touched by the carcass of an unclean animal, you become unrighteous. If you were to eat a clean animal that was washed by water that touched the carcass of an unclean animal, you are deemed unholy. According to God's law, it's when you take in an unclean animal when you eat and ingest and consume into your body, it's then that you are made unclean, unrighteous, unholy before God. And why am I spending so much time on this list of animals? Because this is the truth that Peter was raised with. This is the way that Peter was trained to honor God. In fact, any God-fearing, God-honoring Jew would follow this Levitical food dietary law. And yet in Peter's vision, God places all of these unclean animals shoulder to shoulder on the same sheet as the clean animals. Every animal on earth is represented on this sheet. And what does God command Peter to do? Kill and eat. I imagine Peter thinking to himself, God, how could you ask me to do a thing like this? You know that if I kill an unclean animal, that every other animal on the sheet becomes unclean. And heaven forbid, if I were to actually ingest, take in, consume that unclean animal, or a clean animal that was touched by an unclean animal, I myself will become unclean before you, God. Why would you ask me to do a thing like this? Is this some sort of test? No way, no how, absolutely not, Peter says. I'm not gonna fail this test, not this time, not a chance. This time I'm gonna get it right because Three times God gave Peter the command to kill and eat. And if you know anything about Peter, you know he doesn't have a very good track record with the number three. 
right? Three times Peter fell asleep on Jesus when Jesus needed him to stay awake. Three times Peter denied that he knew anything or had anything to do with Jesus. Three times the rooster crowed. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. And, and three times Jesus commanded Peter to, fill, uh, to feed his sheep. Now three times God is asking Peter to kill and eat, to kill and eat something that Peter knows to be unclean. At this point, like Peter's like developing a twitch at the number three. He's like, there's no way I'm going to fail this time, God. Absolutely not. There's, there's absolutely no way that Peter was going to ingest, take in something that was unclean. But there is a way. There is a way. And you hear it in the command that God gives to Peter. God says to Peter, when he denies God this, this command that to kill and eat, God responds to Peter and says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. You see, Peter was trying to honor God. He was trying not to defile himself before God. He was trying to sanctify himself and remain holy before the Lord. But God says to Peter, I have sanctified these things. I am the one, God says, who has made them clean. What I have sanctified, what I have sanctioned, what I have certified, you must not call profane. And then Peter comes out of this trance. He's like, what does this even mean? He begins to ponder begins to reflect, ask questions. What on earth is going on? I mean, Peter's still hungry, right? Is, is he pondering, like, should I change my lunch order? Like, should I go hit up a Gentile barbecue after this prayer time? Like, is that what Peter is thinking? No, he's not thinking anything like that. See, Peter didn't take the literal interpretation of this vision. The truth of Peter's vision wasn't found in the facts. It was found in its meaning. The point that God was trying to make wasn't about food. God had way bigger plans than what Peter's lunch plans were later that day. The point of the vision wasn't about what Peter was going to take into his body. The point of the vision of what, is what God wanted to take into Christ's body. Let me say that again. The point of the vision wasn't about what Peter could take into his body. The point of the vision was what God wanted to take into Christ's body. This vision is all about the body of Christ. You know, before the vision, we, there was a, a story that, that led into this. We need to understand the context that Peter's vision comes to us. In fact, context is queen. You always want to read before and after a story in Scripture to have a better understanding of what's actually taking place. And so in this context, we learn of a man who also had a vision from God. His name is Cornelius. 
And the context of Cornelius is that he has this vision. And in this vision, the angel of the Lord commands Cornelius to send three men. There's that number three again. Three men to Joppa to look for this man named Peter. And when they find this man, to, to ask this man, Peter, to come back and stay with them in their home. Listen to how Peter tells this part of the story. It's found in Acts 10, verses 17 through 27. Peter says, Now while I, Peter, was greatly puzzled about what to make of this vision that I had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared, and they were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, that's me, was staying there. And while I was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to me, look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down and go with them without hesitation for I have sent them. So I, Peter, went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So I invited them in and I gave them lodging. Peter goes on to say, the next day I got up and went with them and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied me. And the following day we came to Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting us and he had called together his relatives and close friends. And on my arrival, Cornelius met me and falling at my feet, he worshiped me. But I, Peter, made him get up saying, stand up, I am only human. And as I talked with him, I went in and found that many had assembled. Okay, so at this point in the story, I'm kind of confused. I'm like, what does Cornelius have anything to do with the animals on the sheet? What does Cornelius have anything to do with the food that God commanded Peter to eat? Peter helped me put two and two together and Cornelius, although his resume might sound really good to us, was just as unclean as the seagull, the pig, and the snake. But I'm like, Peter, Cornelius sounds like a pretty good guy. I mean, he's a centurion, right? He's strong, like he's a soldier. He, he's commanding, he's a strong leader. This guy can, can he, he's powerful. Like, no, that doesn't help. Like, what about the fact that he's upright and God-fearing? He's, it says that he's praying the very day that you arrived. And what about his reputation, Peter? I mean, he was well liked by the whole Jewish nation. And if that's not enough, an angel of the Lord actually spoke to him directly. And Peter's like, you know what? From your perspective, his resume, yeah, it looks pretty impressive. But from Peter's perspective, it was his resume that made him detestable. Cornelius was a centurion, a Roman soldier, an enemy of the Israelites, an oppressor of the Jews. 
Centurions are the ones who arrested Jesus in the garden. Centurions are the ones who beat and bloodied the Messiah. Centurions are the ones who crucified Jesus on the cross. Peter would rather cut this guy's ear off than give him an earful of the good news. And if that's not enough, Cornelius is a Gentile. Listen to how Peter addresses Cornelius' guests. Verse 28, he says, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. What Peter was doing went against all Jewish social norms. This was completely out of bounds. This was completely off limits. It would be unthinkable for Peter, a Jew, to have table fellowship with Cornelius, a Gentile. Why? Because of what Gentiles eat. Because of the way in which Gentiles live. Gentiles were unclean. And it was socially unacceptable for a Jew to have table fellowship with a Gentile. They would become defiled. They would become unclean. The prevailing Jewish law called for Peter to avoid guys like Cornelius at all cost. And that's why Peter says, you know what we're doing right now? Like would never happen, right? It was common knowledge that Jews and Gentiles don't associate with one another. But listen to how Peter, Peter finishes his thought. Again, in verse 28, he says, I said this already, you yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. But God, stop. But God, perhaps the two most beautiful words ever combined in the English language, but God, Peter says, but God has shown me but God has shown me that I should not call anyone, anyone profane or unclean. Those two simple words, but God. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God, who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love, even while we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, by grace, you have been saved. But God, Peter says, Peter is making a massive shift with these two simple words, but God, but God has shown me that I must not call anyone profane or unclean. How did Peter go from a vision of food to dining with Gentiles? How did Peter go from profane to pious, from an abomination to authorization? How did Peter go from unclean to unstained? He understood that the facts of the vision carried a much deeper meaning. So we need to move from the fact truth of the vision into the meaning truth of the vision. And this is a hard shift to make. 
It was a hard shift for Peter to make as well. When Peter went to Cornelius' house to preach, he hadn't quite made that shift. It's only been like 24 hours since Peter had the vision. So we kind of kind of cut him some slack here. But, you know, he hadn't quite made the shift to totally understand what it was that God was saying and all that it might mean. You can hear him wrestling with this new truth when he says in Acts 10, 34 through 35, you hear Peter say, I, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. And we got to stop there. That's so significant. That is so massive of a shift for Peter that God shows no partiality. That is not what Peter was brought up to understand. This is a big statement. Peter is making a huge shift. And, and yet Peter goes on. He says, but, he says, in every nation, anyone, you can hear that shift starting to happen. Who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Wait, what? There's something about that last part that just doesn't sound quite right. It sounds like Peter just kind of hit the brakes. He's like, like, I don't know. I don't know, Peter. Is this what God really said to you? Anyone who is upright, respectable, God-fearing, do not call unclean. Is that what God said? There's something not quite right about Peter's statement. And the more I think about it, it just... It just doesn't jive with Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't approach the woman at the well because of her amazing credentials, because she was some upright standing citizen. Jesus didn't engage the leper or heal the man with the withered hand. He didn't make the lame walk and the blind to see because of their credentials. In fact, Jesus taught his disciples that those who have all the spiritual credentials are the least likely to come to the party. Jesus taught us, his disciples, to actually go out into the main street and invite everyone, clean and unclean, righteous and unholy, and invite them into the party. Jesus wants to get this party started. And yet Peter is still functioning under his old paradigm, that God accepted Cornelius because of his qualifications. The fact is that Cornelius is accepted before God, has nothing to do with his credentials. It has nothing to do with his attributes, his status, or his efforts. Cornelius is is accepted before God because it has everything to do with God. Have you ever experienced cognitive dissonance, this idea where you're trying to hold two things that seem to be opposed to one another in your mind and there's this internal tension going on. Have you ever experienced that before? This is where Peter is. He is transitioning out of an old paradigm and hasn't yet fully embraced the new. Peter hasn't quite made this full shift and granted, this is a very hard shift to make. Imagine being Peter. Your whole life, you were trained, brought up 
that you need to follow a certain dietary law in order to be seen as righteous before God, that you need to avoid a certain kind of people in order to remain holy before God, that you are accepted before God because of your spiritual resume. And yet Peter was able to let go of the belief that it was his Jewishness that justified him. That is a massive shift. And yet he held on to the belief that it was his righteousness that made him worthy. This is something that he couldn't quite let go of. I can't imagine the spiritual gymnastics that are required to navigate his internal tension. How did he hold these two things together? Don't eat those animals. They are unclean. Eat those animals. <laughs> I've made them clean. How do you hold two things that seem to be opposed to one another, but they're actually both coming from God? We find the answer partially in what Peter says and partially in what Peter doesn't say. In Acts 10, verse 28, Peter says, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. And Peter states God's command, do not call anyone profane or unclean. But is that it? Is that all that God said to Peter? It seems like Peter has left something out. What did God say? God said, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Notice God did not say those who are God-fearing and do what is right. He said, those who I have made clean, you must not call profane. And Peter still doesn't get it. This is a hard shift to make. Did you know that the name Peter means rock? <laughs> that it's, it's Petra means rock that Jesus says to Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter was the rock before the rock was the rock. Like Dwayne Johnson's got nothing on Peter. And it's not because Peter was buff, although he was a fisherman. And if you've been watching The Chosen, he looks pretty ripped in The Chosen. But that's not why he's called the rock. And it wasn't because he was rock solid in his faith. Remember, Peter was sinking while he was walking on water. It wasn't because he was rock solid in his friendship Remember, Peter fell asleep on Jesus three times. It, it wasn't because Peter was rock solid in his faithfulness. Peter denied Jesus, having anything to do with Jesus three times. I, I can kind of picture, and this is just me, this is my imagination, but I, I kind of picture Jesus coming up to Peter and being like, Peter, you know, and he's like, wraps his arm around. He's like, Peter, you know, it means rock, like upon this rock, you know, and he's like knocking on his head, upon this rock, I will build my church. Like is Peter called the rock because he's so hard-headed? And I don't mean to like, come on, I love Peter, but I relate with Peter. I'm hard-headed. You know, a lot of us are. And when we try to make a shift like this, this is a hard shift to make. In fact, Peter wasn't the only one who had a hard time with this shift. Let's briefly look at Acts chapter 11. Acts 11 verses one through three. It says this, now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. 
saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? And what I find fascinating about the way in which Peter responds to their criticism is that he doesn't go to proof texting his argument. He doesn't go to scripture to defend himself. What does he do? His defense was based upon what he saw, what he heard, and what he witnessed. He basically retells his vision verbatim. How, you know, God said for me to kill and eat. And, and then I, I responded to God and I was like, no way, absolutely not. I've never taken in anything unclean or profane. And then he goes on and he emphasizes God's command. He says, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. And yet even more fascinating in his response, what actually caused his critics to shift is this. Peter appeals to what he witnessed. Listen to this in Acts 11, verses 15 through 18. And, and as I, Peter, began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had fell upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here's the crux of Peter's argument. In verse 17, he says, if then God gave them the same spirit that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? And when they heard this, they were silenced and they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Peter did not appeal to the words of Leviticus. In his argument, Peter appealed to the words of the Lord. Peter did not look to Cornelius's credentials to silence the critics. No, the evidence that silenced the critics was the evidence of the Holy Spirit. What God has commanded of Peter and the whole community, what did God call Peter and the whole community to, to lay down? God's asking Peter and the whole community, lay down your self-righteousness. Lay down your tendency to try to justify yourself. I want you to pick something up. I want you to pick up my righteousness. I want you to pick up my acceptance and my justification. Why? Why does God want us to lay this down and to pick this up? So that we can bring in all people, all who God is pursuing, we can take them in to the body of Christ. This is what God longs for us to do. So whether you crawl on four limbs or you stand upright on two feet, whether you squirm on your stomach or you fly high on angels' wings, whether you Think of yourself as unworthy or you think of yourself as unstained. Clean or unclean, we all stand on the same sheet. Clean or unclean, we all stand on the same sheet. You want to stand off the sheet? Let's go there. Come with me. Let's go off the sheet. See, when you live off the sheets, you believe that it's your holiness that makes you righteous. 
It's all about why you are worthy and why others aren't. When you stand off the sheets, you are spending yourself, trying not to defile yourself, trying to present yourself wholly before God, and you end up avoiding those people over there. And the problem with that is that those are the very people that God is pursuing. So I ask you to ask yourselves this question. Who do you say doesn't belong on the sheet? Don't run away. Don't go to your phone. Don't go to your fridge for a break. Sit with that question. When you hear that question, who comes to mind? Who do you think doesn't belong on this sheet? Let's get back on the sheet together. See, when we stand on the sheet, Galatians 2, 16 through 21 says this, that we live in the truth that a person is not justified, made righteous or considered clean because of their own faithfulness. No, we are considered clean because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We don't place our faith in our faithfulness Paul says no one will be justified by their own faithfulness. But rather we rely on the faithfulness of Jesus. We believe in Jesus Christ. We place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The faithfulness. We place our faith and trust in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. See, when we're on the sheet, we stand in humility, shoulder to shoulder with one another. All of us are people whom God has made clean. In here, we stand on Christ. Jesus is our justification. Christ is our righteousness. And I want you to ask yourself, am I living my life as, I'm, as if I'm on the sheet or off the sheet? Am I standing on my own righteousness or am I standing on the righteousness of Christ? See, God is calling us to let go of our self-righteousness, our tendency to try to justify ourselves. He's asking for us to pick up Christ's righteousness and the Spirit's justification so that we can welcome in to Christ's body all whom God has made clean. We have been set free to pursue the very people that God is pursuing. Whom God has made clean, you must not call profane. Whom Christ has made righteous, you must not call unholy. Whom the Spirit has justified, you must not reject. Let's pray. Holy God, I am blown away by your love for us. The way in which you loved us while we were still sinners, you came and demonstrated your love for us. You gave of yourself for us that we might stand on your righteousness and your holiness, that we don't have to stand on our own, that we aren't left off the sheep, but that you have brought us in. As unclean as we were, we are holy and righteous before you. God, would you forgive us for the ways in which we call others profane, the way in which we distance ourselves from other people because we don't want to tarnish ourselves. Lord, we stand in your righteousness and we pursue those 
whom you long to bring in. Would you give us that courage to make that shift? Would you affirm in us your love for us, your acceptance of us, your approval of us because of whose we are, not because of what we've done. Jesus, we give you all glory and honor and pray, praise, and we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.